me pray. Lord, I pray that we come into this place uh, desiring to receive your heart for us personally and for our church and for the influence you want us to do in this community to care and love for other people, that um, areas in our life that we need to think differently about and, and shift priority, that the spirit would be present and at work in this place and moving amongst us. We just invite you into this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you uh, missed last week, I've got some good news for you because there's really no easy way to lean into this morning is you're going to get uh, a short-ish recap. Uh, if you were here last week, I kind of had a hard, hard stop, didn't I? Where we just went, oh my goodness, Brett's 30 minutes into this and he's probably got another 45 to an hour left in his notes. This is not good. So I did you a favor, and I split that in two. And if you're first time here this week, or you missed last week, and our audio didn't work on the live stream last week, uh, you're going to have to get just a brief recap of what we've been talking about. And what we did is we took Acts, really the end of chapter 11, the last few verses, and we looked at all of Acts 12, and rather than kind of a pulling out thoughts and ideas, we took a big picture of Herod who was a tyrant of a leader. And then we have the church and Peter who are being persecuted, imprisoned. They're huddled together praying because one of their other leaders, James, has already been beheaded. And we looked at these two kinds of people and we posed a major question for our life that's gonna get put up there in just a second. The kind of question that we asked ourselves was this. What kind of life is a life worth wanting? We didn't even ask what kind of a life is a life worth living. We asked what kind of a life is a life worth wanting? And then the big question, how do you know? How do you know? And this is why this is important. Coming from Marisol's Wolf, his book, Mouthful of a Name to Say, hopefully I don't have to say it that many times. He said this, how you choose to live your life is the most important and lasting choice you'll ever make. We are deciding what kind of human being it is worth being. Now, here's the deal. This is where most contemporary Christianity stops. It just ends there with a period. What kind of a person should I be in this world? Is that an important question? Is that an important question? <laughs> yeah, it is. Am I going to be a jerk? Am I going to be nice? Am I going to, as we talked about weeks ago, live a tove kind of life? Or am I going to go against the grain of what God has created? But listen, Wolf goes on and says, and what kind of world here and now is worth inhabiting? See, a lot of Western Christianity leaves that second part out because they have this escapism mentality that says, just kind of walk in the ways of Jesus and mind your own business and be a good person and let the world do its own thing over here without realizing that we have to ask ourselves the second part of that, what kind of world is worth inhabiting, living in? And how you answer this question this morning has a ripple effect into your life. And what we noted if you are here last week, is for centuries, centuries, rabbis, magis, priests in various religions, sages full of wisdom, shamas, brahmas, and bras, 
All right. I have young kids. They are asking this question, and they came to a very broad conclusion that Wolf points out. All of them, though varying in certain degrees of what makes a true life a life worth wanting, what makes the good life or a flourishing life, different phrases to the same kind of idea, they all centered on three things. Go to the next slide. A life going well, and we noted that the desirable circumstances of life, natural, fertile, uncontaminated land, you want fresh water, don't you? That's a good thing whether you're living thousand years ago or today. Good reputation and personal like health and longevity, a life led well, a gentle, good conduct of life from right thoughts of heart and right acts to right habits and right virtues, and then life feeling as it should, this effective life, dimensions of the flourishing life about states of happiness, contentment, joy, and empathy. And so what we did is we threw up this next chart, and we talked about how these three points of life going well, life led well, and life feeling as it should. It's not like, just get rid of this leg right here, a three-legged stool that holds up the good life. They, in fact, are this more intertwined way of living that all is mixed together as you walk in each one of those things. And so this is called, I learned this word, a tripartite, a formal structure of the flourishing life. Life led well is love. Life going well is peace. Life feeling as it should is joy. Now, this was the dilemma and problem. You have the whole movement of the Enlightenment period, and then humans beginning to believe that they've arrived to some state of knowledge that has surpassed all other previous generations, and we have walked into what is called postmodernism. This shift in which we no longer really accept the wisdom of old, or if we do, maybe it helps formulate a little bit of our thoughts and our beliefs, but really the ultimate authority is myself. And I am going to be the one who defines what is the good life, what is a flourishing life, what is a life worth living. And this has been to our cultural demise. As people struggle to define the good life, and fall short time and time again. There's this vision of a true life. But the problem is, if we have the wrong ends that we're trying to achieve, then all the means that we use to get there will continue to lead us down a path of depression, frustration, being let down, and confused. And what we noted in our culture is the American dream is really what has propelled our values in this culture. Now, what is the American dream? All right, Oxford Dictionary, you ready for this? It's not gonna be up there. It's not worth putting up there. <laughs> the ideal that every citizen of the United States should have an equal opportunity, that's great, to achieve success, prosperity, through hard work, determination, and initiative. You're born or you come to this country, what is the end goal for anybody here? Success? Prosperity, wealth, hard work. This is the ends that people believe we should get to if we're going to have lived a life worth wanting. The problem is, if we're born into a culture in which the ends have already been predetermined for us, yet it's wrong, 
we are being absolutely misled. Here's what Thomas Aquinas said. This will be up there. The beatitude of human beings, that which gives them unadulterated happiness and realizes their human fullness, cannot possibly be any created good, but must be found in God alone. Let that just sink in. Happiness. Really, at the end of the day, a good human desire to strive for will never be found in what you can amass for yourself, what you achieve in this life, not in human created good, but in God alone. Our problem in our culture is that we simply do not take the time to entertain what a flourishing life looks like. We do not take the time and sit around the table with our kids and with our friends to talk about what does the true life actually look like. And when we have established some sort of it, it tends to look more like the American dream version of what we believe the true life is. And then we wonder why things are not going right. And so here in the church... And what we've been talking about at Redeemers for actually the last couple of years as we looked at Matthew and we looked at the kingdom of God, we've really been looking at Jesus. And we've said, Jesus, he lived a life worth wanting, didn't he? No? <laughs> yes, <laughs> he absolutely did. And we say, I want to look like Jesus. And this kind of looking like Jesus leads us down this countering taste driven inside of us it pushes back against individualization. It pushes back against living in ways that are destructive, but embracing, caring, and loving others and a compelling vision of what the flourishing life looks like. So what is a life worth living? What does the flourishing life look like? What is it in Jesus that makes his ideas so wonderful and so great and worth pursuing? How does the vision Jesus offered us match up with what we were created to do and who we were created to be? Wolf says this, Jesus didn't just feed the poor and heal the sick, although he did that, and stated explicitly that he came to do that. More importantly, he called them to reorient their entire lives around seeking God and God's righteousness. And so this is where we're at this morning. That's just catching you up to speed to what we've been talking about. And what I want to do is shake us up a little bit and challenge us in the areas of what did you think on this last week was a flourishing life? Was a life worth wanting? How does Jesus then disrupt us and cause us to see a different kind of end? Now, here's what happens in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus came, and he came preaching the what? The good news, preaching the we, yes, the gospel. We taught on this. It was the whole Matthew series. The kingdom. Yes. All right. Good job, guys. He came preaching the kingdom. In fact, he made a very startling announcement with the presence of himself. The kingdom of God has arrived amongst them. He didn't come just simply offering them self-help on how to be better people, but he's offering the kingdom, and as a result, this transformative power that's going to radically reorient every single disciple's life to have a different trajectory in which how they live, not just for some future event to come, but here and now, like that second part of what Wolf was saying. 
How does this cause even a flourishing, not just your life, but in the world around us today? He came preaching the kingdom, and we see kingdom living throughout Jesus' life. Now, kingdom living has been some bit of a hotbed phrase, right? And yet, it seems a little bit aloof at times. Like, what do I actually grab onto when I think about kingdom living? What does that look like in my life? And Jesus begins to show us this as he lives, as he serves others, as he came not for himself, but to give himself for others. Then inviting us as citizens into his kingdom, which reorients, entirely changes how we live. So what is the vision of a flourishing life? It's the big question I wanted us to wrestle with. How is the true life led well? How the true life goes well? And how the true life feels as it should? Okay, this leads us to Romans. You guys ready? In Rome, in the early church, were all the Christians getting along with each other? No. no. Romans is written because you have two groups. Believe it or not, it was the Jews and the Gentiles, the Roman Gentiles in Rome. And these groups had different ways of conducting themselves and living their lives, but what happened was is they had submitted, come under the authority of King Jesus who made them a new people, who has brought them together. But they have different traditions and histories that sometimes have some competing themes with one another that Paul is having to write to in order to get them on the same playing field. To go, look guys, you're doing this wrong. The gospel, the kingdom, the good news of Jesus is bringing reconciliation, not just between you and God, but between each other as well. And so Romans is written in a way in which Paul is trying to bring these two to the table to hang out. And believe it or not, some of their problems revolved around food and drink, or days to even meet and gather. And that's what we stumble upon here in this passage as we look at verse 17. Paul says, for the kingdom of God. Paul doesn't talk about the kingdom that often. I think he mentions it five to seven times in all of his writings, whereas it's like 80 to 90 times in the Gospels. Okay? He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These three things are a compact summary of the Christian vision of the flourishing life. Paul can import them into his thinking to address a question that the Romans, that this church had in mind. The verse goes on in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. All right, here we go. Paul, knowing there is dissension in Rome, he looks at them and he says, look, you're fighting over food. Should we eat meat? Should we not eat meat? What about meat sacrificed to idols? How do we go about this? And then Paul is addressing their customs and their practices. And he says, look, a life that is lived well is not about these practicalities, but it is about the first one there, righteousness. 
That word righteousness is the word dikaiosina, which means righteous or justice. And what that means for Paul in Romans, as in other places, can be about God's covenant faithfulness, God's righteousness, God's righteous rule over his creation. It can also refer to what Jesus performed, the just act on the cross for us. And so this idea of righteousness as used in Romans is talking about the fidelity to a covenant. I know some big thoughts here, but just track with me. Through obedience to the law. So righteousness is really just obedience or loyalty to the covenant. Now, great. What's the covenant, Brent? What are you talking about? The covenant, and if we can think of the Old Testament and even the law that God had given to Israel, was the way in which they were to live their lives under God's rule and God's reign. They obviously fail that and fall apart, get cast into slavery and have this whole waiting period, and then Jesus shows up. The question we have, though, because it's very clear in Paul's mind, is this idea of righteousness. What is the substance of the law? What is the law all about? How did Jesus sum up the law? To do what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And to do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I'm about to talk about is very important. When I talk about righteousness and this idea of righteousness and love together, this is stemming from what Jesus has done for us, being our righteousness and making us righteous. And now Paul is saying, because of what Jesus has done, you are to be a righteous person. The substance of being a righteous person is all about love. Let me read to you Romans 13, 8, Romans 13, 8 through 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What is the substance of the law? To love one another. So in Romans 14, when Paul says the kingdom is about righteousness, he says the kingdom is about love. To be a kingdom-minded, a kingdom type of person, to live a flourishing life is to be a person who is about loving other people. It goes on and says, for the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. So when you see this idea of righteousness here in the scripture, Paul is talking about this idea that if you want a flourishing life, be a person of love. In fact, in Galatians, we see a parallel passage, 522, when it lists the fruit of the Spirit. What is the first three? Love, joy, peace. Romans 14, what did Paul just say the kingdom is about? Righteousness or love, and what? Joy and peace. A flourishing life is a life that is about these three things. A life led well is one that is participating in the kingdom of God because of what the Spirit has done for you. American dream, a life led well. Success, 
fame, passion, sexuality. Those are their ends. But Paul says something very different. He says, no, it is about love. Not power, not dominance, not your priority, not your need to be first. I have a a group of men that I meet with on Wednesday mornings. And I was just sharing with them, I've been listening to the Bible Project's recent study on, um, I can't even think of the brilliant word they use, but basically the firstborn. Right? How important the firstborn, secondborn is, even in the Old Testament. And they talk about it in terms of how we give ourselves priority and think of ourselves in this very important place, especially for the firstborn. And I was thinking this through as I pulled into the uh, oil change line on Tuesday. And I pulled into the oil change line, and I had the option to get into either lane, and I'm kind of looking at the cars in front going, I wonder which one's going to take longer. And I pull in to the one that I thought would be shorter, which I should always go against my gut, huh, hon? <laughs> and this other guy right after pulls into the next one. And I sit there and I'm like, they better put me in front of him. They better get me in front of this guy if he gets to go in before I get to go in. As I'm listening to the Bible project talk about, <laughs> I am not kidding, talk about how stop putting yourself first. As I'm getting ready to preach on what it means to love and to love one another is to give somebody else more priority than yourself. In fact, in Ephesians 5, it says to esteem one another above yourself. Romans says the same thing just prior in Romans 13. Esteem others higher than yourself. And I have these great opportunities to love, and yet I got angry because the other car got in first. Are you kidding me? Right? Love, though, if you want to have a flourishing life, love is crucial. Bob Goff writes a lot about this, and I've used this quote before, but he says, talking about love, that's because love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. The kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. It's a love that operates more like a sign language than being spoken outright. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. What does love look like? It's not just gushy feelings and just saying it to one another. No, as Goff declares, love is not stationary. It is active. It is action. If you're thinking about a flourishing life, This morning, a flourishing life is love in action. Love is presence. You see, we got to get over the idea that people are annoyances or problems or hurdles to get over, but that we're actually going to be present in one another's lives, even the difficult ones, even mine, right? Love is sacrifice. It is costly. It is not selfish. That's what love briefly looks like. The next point, if we're going to live a flourishing life, is going to be a life of peace. This idea of peace in Romans as well as in Galatians can be taken in two ways. One can mean inner peace, just that inner shalom because you are with God and God is with you. But it means more than that as used in the New Testament. It's got a larger scope in mind in which God is setting the world right. 
Romans 14 is desirable, not of just relationship between you and God and having that kind of peace, but all of Romans is written that we, the church, would have peace with one another. You know what it's like when you have a rift with somebody? You see them, and what do you do? Go down a different aisle of the store. You avoid them. You can feel the tension with them. That is not a flourishing life. That is a destructive life. That is a painful life. A life led well or a life worth wanting is one that strives to make peace with one another. Now, here's what's really interesting. If you think about life, we can and should love and always love. But we can't and won't always have peace, will we? I mean, humans are pretty good at disrupting each other's peace, aren't we? Like, kids are a great example of that. Go home, I'm gonna watch. I think the Chiefs lose today. Anybody with me? Does this church like sports? (laughs) You guys know what this is? (laughs) These are the cheaters in the recent um, (laughs) draft trades or trades going on. Anyways. Um, Our lives can easily be disrupted. We can and always should love, but we won't always feel moments of peace because life has these disruptive moments that bring harm and turmoil and angst, but we should always strive for peace whenever possible. See, Paul talked about this, live peaceable lives with one another. Strive for peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, life is going to have turmoil. Life is going to have struggle. But if we love and continue to love as Jesus loved, and we can love that way because Jesus is loved that way, we're striving for peace even when there's disruption in our lives. And peace can be had, absolutely. One, because you have it between you and God, but also because he made it possible with each other. In Galatians 3.28, Paul is tackling a heavy issue when he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile Slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. All of these classes and standards that we've set up to establish authority and position and dominance over one another, Paul says, knock it off. Because of Jesus, there is now peace in all of these areas. There is peace between one another. And Wolf says, Peace begins in the church. This is where peace absolutely must and should reign because of what God has done for us. And it's what's going to happen in the fully, what we call consummated kingdom. When Jesus returns, we're going to see a world marked by love and a world marked by peace. And while we do things like trash each other, hurt each other with words, maybe do physical acts of harm towards one another, we can disrupt that peace, but it should not stop us from striving for peace and flourishing, from being honest when we've caused disruptions where there should not have been disruptions and brought chaos in. We've set up standards that are absolutely wrong when you actually look at what the scriptures say. A flourishing life is going to be a life filled with peace. And even when there's problems, it comes back around to peace because Jesus provides the way of peace. Finally, the last one. 
life feeling as it should. This is this effective flourishing. It's joy, joy. Now, this jarred me this week. True joy requires an intentional object over which one ought to rejoice. Yeah. True joy requires an intentional object over which one ought to rejoice. Why do we have joy? Because there's some object, something we treasure, something we value that is bringing us to that place of rejoicing. If you're going to have true joy, you must rejoice over something, a person, a thing that you are rejoicing over. So ultimately, this is what you live for. If you live for pleasure, this is what you'll rejoice over. If you live for success, this is what you will have joy and rejoice over. If you live for family or for power, those are the things that you'll have joy and rejoice over. However, the problem with those is they often feel elusive, slippery, out of our grip. We get a hold of them. There's momentary excitement, and then it's gone, and then we're back into a state of bummed out, let down, and brokenness. It's hard to hold on to pleasure, isn't it? It's difficult to hold on to success. Even the rich die, and their kids squander away their money some generations down the line, right? these things that people build their whole lives around. Yet Jesus, when he becomes the object of our joy and we reflect on Jesus and he is our constant hope, it radically impacts our trajectory and how we see the world around us. Joy overlaps and is intertwined with love and peace. Hear that? Joy overlaps and is intertwined with love and peace. These ought to be our marks. If you want a flourishing life, a life lived well, don't think about what this world has to offer. Think about this different vision for life that Paul has presented to us this morning. Think about Acts, Acts 12. Why is the church rejoicing even though Herod is coming down hard on them? Why do they have reason to live a completely different kind of life? It's because they had a whole other end so in which their means, the things they did, leading to that looked very different than everybody else. So for you this morning, what is a life worth wanting? I'm gonna bring the worship team back up here. Michael and Finn, you can come on up. I want you to ask, a life worth wanting? What in my life have I been off on? What have I been setting my sights on and aiming for? And maybe that needs to change today. Focus on love, joy, and peace, those three intertwined together. Have you been off, or is there anything you need to adjust that you're casting this new vision for? Think through that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. I pray that today we would live lives that flourish under you, your reign, your kingship that would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and see all these things added unto us. But as we live from the inside out, that you'd be changing the inside and the passions and the desires of our heart, causing us to focus on you, to love you, and to serve you. Be with us this morning. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. If you'd stand with me um, this morning, we're going to continue, if you're new here, to worship our Lord in song, to gather around a very small, small meal here at communion, which we celebrate Jesus and his sacrifice and what he's done. There's opportunity to give to what God is doing. There's a little box there in the back. During this first song, the tables are open. You can grab the cup, grab the bread. I'll come back up here. I'll lead us briefly in communion, and then we'll continue to worship our Lord and then close out. But don't miss this opportunity now to ask yourself, what does it look like to flourish? Let's worship the Lord together. Mm-hmm.